And so I have invited Mark Ward um, to be with us tonight, and he's going to talk a little bit about uh, worldview and just kind of the way that we interact and think about the world around us. Um, I'll just give it that much of a talk. Um, do you need it? more of an introduction? Mark works for Who's Faith Mark? Life. What? Who is Mark? This, this is Mark. Tell us about it. Um, <laughs> he has written a book called um, Authorized. It's on the shelf over there. I have a copy in my office as well if you'd like to read it. Um, he used to be the editor for Bible Study Magazine. Is that now? It, the last issue came out yesterday. last issue. He, he writes <clears> the back page. It's called Word Nerd. Um, all about uh, biblical language, and it's usually pretty interesting if you are into that sort of thing. Um, I don't know what else to say. Mark! Yeah. All right. <laughs> I'll uh, add one more thing there. One of the reasons that I'm here is that I have written on biblical worldview. I was a Bible textbook author for nine years at BJU Press, which is one of the major Christian textbook publishers, K-12. through and I was privileged to work for several years on a 12th grade worldview textbook, Biblical Worldview, Creation, Fall, Redemption. And then actually um, a couple years ago, they called me again and wanted me to write a 6th grade worldview book as a freelancer. And on the ADX bus that leaves from right over there and goes up to Bellingham every day and then comes back, I wrote that book on the bus. That was the only time I had available. And it's great because on the bus, nobody can call you. They can't expect you to answer if they do. So I knew I had that like 45 minutes in the morning and 45 minutes in the evening. And actually, that's relevant because that sixth grade book, because I was no longer working there full time, the outline for it was handed to me. And I was able to you know, make some comments about it. But basically, they said, write to these specs. you know. And one of the things that happened in the about six years between when we started the 12th grade book and then when they handed me the outline for the 6th grade book, uh, I think was the rise of the concept of identity. And so we didn't even really address that. You know, now going back to 2013 is when we would have started that 12th grade book. But by the time, what is it, 2018 rolled around when we were planning the 6th grade book, it was really essential and we had a whole unit on identity. And that's the concept that I want to talk about tonight. When it comes to identity, as everybody knows, you have two options. You can either be Queen Elsa of Arendelle, or you can be Violet from The Incredibles. And although you all fully understand everything that I meant by that, I'm going to explain anyway. <laughs> if you're not sure who Elsa is, you either don't have a daughter or you live in a cave. <laughs> And that's okay. We need daughterless cave people in the Christian church as well. But you've probably at least heard Elsa's famous song, maybe just at Walmart or something. Let it go, let it go, and I'll rise like the break of dawn. I'm not going to sing this, Jim. Do not ask. Let it go, let it go. That perfect girl is gone. Here I stand in the light of day. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. And in Frozen, when she sings that, a movie that my children have watched, I admit, more times than there are Frozen fractals around the top of Mount Baker, um, she sings these words defiantly into empty space. Her search for her identity has led to her leaving her responsibilities as queen behind, cutting herself off from those who love her and expressing who she believes to be her true self even if it means that she lives by herself in an ice castle on a mountain. That same search for self-expression in the story 
also very nearly leads to the death of her sister, Anna, the one person who loved Elsa with true love, a really heartwarming sisterly love, which I found to be a really wonderful theme in the movie. Uh, Elsa had tried to keep her true identity hidden. Her parents told her, don't let them in, don't let them see, be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. But she says in her famous song that she couldn't keep it in. Heaven knows I tried. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Okay, come on. Thank you. So her big anthem, Let It Go, is her decision to express her self-identity. She can't hold it back anymore, and she says, I don't care what they're going to say. And she says, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. On the lips of Elsa, at least at this point in the story, your identity is whatever your strongest desires are. And you should express that identity no matter what people say. Even though at the end of the story, Elsa comes to a better viewpoint, it's interesting and instructive to me that this was the song that became the movie's mega hit. I don't know if you remember this, but back when it came out, I don't know what year, 2012 or something? 2010, I can't remember now. Um, the, there was this theme, there was this thing where like nine-year-old YouTuber, YouTubers or girls on YouTube would stick up songs of them, uh, uh, videos of them singing this song. And that song was sort of lifted out of the narrative context of the movie and became an anthem for self-expression because that song tells our culture what it wants to hear, what our culture tells itself over and over. Follow your heart, be yourself, or in the immortal words of the Fruity Pebbles commercial that I just saw not long ago, yabba dabba do you. Have you seen that one? It's true. I saw that at a hotel in Canada. If the world is against Elsa's choice to be a reclusive and dangerous snow queen, then it's Elsa against the world. She says, here I stand, which I always found sadly ironic because who else said those words? Martin Luther, remember that? Here I stand, I can do no other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I've actually stood on the spot where Martin Luther said those words. So a decidedly white woman, born with blonde hair, identifies as black. You guys know this actually happened. And our culture was like all confused about what to say. Like, that's wrong. Oh, I can't say that's wrong. <laughs> if she truly feels that's who she is, well, who are we to judge how she identifies? Here she stands. So an Olympic men's decathlon champion, 30 years after his triumphs, identifies as a woman. And our culture cheers harder for his wig and mascara than they did for his Olympic gold medals. Here he stands, or lounges, on the cover of Vanity Fair. And I've taught my children to recognize how often the message of a given item of American popular culture is, be yourself. All your desires are good. No right, no wrong, no rules for you. Here you stand. People say they hate preaching. No, they love it. The message, this message, is the drumbeat of our culture. This is the Western world. This is Elsa's world. As Carl Truman said of Elsa's world, we all live in a world in which it's increasingly easy to imagine that reality is something we can manipulate according to our own wills and desires and not something that we necessarily need to conform ourselves to or passively accept. Now, despite my antipathy toward the song Let It Go, my family does like Frozen because of the way it ends up. I think it's really special. 
But my all-time favorite movie, and you're hopefully expecting something massively intellectual, no, it's The Incredibles. Uh, I, I've already talked too long about kid movies, but it cannot be helped. My notes are already typed up. <laughs> to me, this is a very extended introduction, and no apologies, because I love The Incredibles. To me, The Incredibles, which is a story of a family of superheroes, is very rich in meaning. When I first started watching The Incredibles back when it came out, was it like 2003? I was uh, hopelessly single. And now that I have a wife and three children, um, boy, girl, boy, which is not the same as Mr. Incredible, but he still has one girl and two boys. You know, I just identify even more with the movie. movie. I've probably seen it <laughs> 10 times. And as in 10 million modern movies, over the course of the film, Mr. Incredible is first inhibited from expressing his true identity and then liberated to be who he truly is, right? Dash, too. Remember Dash? Is eager to run as fast as he can. As fast as I can, as fast as you can, his mom says. And he was clearly designed to do this. In the sequel, he says, his, this running defines who I am. Violet, however, remember her, the oldest daughter, is far less self-confident in her, in her abilities, and therefore she's less eager to embrace the identity that those abilities give her. In her story arc, she finally gains that confidence and therefore that identity. But unlike nine million modern movies, what Mr. Incredible finds when he's liberated is not an individualistic identity that he has manipulated, the casting off of all restraint. He finds something far better. He's now the leader of a loving family. He tells his family when he's hanging up there in prison by the bad guy, I almost missed it. He finds freedom in meeting his obligations to his wife and children and society. And not in working alone, but in letting his family instead join him in his work, meeting his obligations to the world. It takes the gifts of the whole family to bring down the bad guys in the end. I found it really interesting that unlike dad, the mom, Elastigirl, for, you know, forgive me the length of this here, but I really, I've thought about this. She really willingly gave up her superhero identity for her family. It didn't seem to be as much of a problem for her. So much so did she give up her identity that her kids are shocked when she uses her powers. Like my favorite moment in the film, it gets me every time, is actually when Violet and Dash and their mom are falling from this plane that just exploded. She just saved their lives. Elastigirl suddenly wakes up. <clears throat> she turns her, her body into a parachute and she grabs her kids so they can float safely to the ocean below. And then both kids go, like they look at her like, who is this person? <laughs> They didn't know what she could do. She had so much given her identity over to being mom. And forgive me again here, I don't, I'm not preaching from, um, uh, from movies, I promise. We're going to get to a much more important message, but I'm just trying to set something up by understanding our culture first. There are young people in this room here and others going through transitions who have the same kind of question. Who is this person? But about yourself. And our culture is very much willing to tell you, be yourself. But it doesn't want to tell you what yourself is. That's kind of the whole, whole point. You're allowed to be whatever you want to be. The young people in here who are now or soon going to maybe go to college or move out of the home, there are going to be some appropriate parental restraints that are taken off of you. You're probably looking forward to that moment. 
And then your powers, whatever they are, are likely to manifest themselves, whatever you're good at, from the culinary arts to engineering to what have you. And, and this time when you're transitioning into adult life is when you look at yourself and finally start getting some solid answers to the question, who is this person? Who am I? Adults are always asking you when you're a kid, you know, what are you going to be when you grow up? And when you get to that transition stage, they get coming into adulthood, is when you start to get some solid ideas about actually who it is you might want to be. Now, again, I'm not going to preach to you from The Incredibles and certainly not from Frozen, even though both are good movies. They don't have the authority to answer questions about identity, your identity or mine. They have some good opinions, I think, but that's all they are. I'm going to give you some answers to basic questions about identity from the only person who has the authority to answer them. And what your pastor asked me to do was to turn from the, and I haven't heard the other talks that have been given here, but to turn from some of the negative, necessary cultural critique, like we just did, of Frozen, and turn to the positive and constructive. And I definitely want to do that from Scripture. I want to appeal to the only person who has the authority to tell you who you are. That would be God himself. So I'm going to preach to you from the Bible, and I've got a thesis. A biblical view of identity means conforming yourself to your true nature rather than trying to conform nature to yourself. Let me say that again. A biblical view of identity means conforming yourself to your true nature, your given nature, the one given you by God, rather than trying to conform nature to yourself. There was a theologian who wrote, myself is given to me far more than it is formed by me. Man, scripture says, cannot add an inch to his height. We cannot stand any higher than God has made us stand. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles, if you got them, to Genesis 1. If you can't find that, talk to your pastor. It is probably his fault. Genesis chapter 1. For a Christian, the answer to the question, who is this person? Who am I? What is my identity? Absolutely has to have a foundation in Scripture. God, the person who made us, is the one who can best answer the question of who we are, what we're for. And I'm going to keep this super simple because Genesis does. I've got three points about your identity. I am an ordained Baptist pastor, and I was told I had to have three points every time. They're all drawn from one key paragraph in the first chapter of the Bible. Actually, um, your pastor was on my ordination council, which I really, really appreciated and enjoyed. Here are the three points. You are like God, and you're supposed to be like God. That's point number one. You are like God, and you're supposed to be like God. Point number two, you are blessed to fill and rule God's world. The day that I stumbled into this church, actually the first time, like seven years ago now, um, we were all ready to go to the church where I was already serving out in Anacortes, and I made the mistake of feeding almonds to my baby at the time, and he developed welts. We're all dressed for church. We see these welts. My wife tosses the baby into the car and races off to the ER because her brother almost died from uh, allergic reactions to stuff. And at that time, we had only one car, so I tossed the other two children, who would then have been like three and five, 
into the um, bike trailer thing that I had, and we rode down to this church because we live right down the street, right near Mount Vernon Christian. And the first sermon that I heard from your pastor, um, he was referencing one of my favorite books, Culture Making, by Andy Crouch, and he was talking about this very thing. You are blessed to fill and rule God's world. And then the third point in this uh, little address I'm giving tonight is you are male or female, and that is very good. God in this chapter, Genesis 1, has been creating the world. You know, just in case you don't know. Day one, light. Day two, atmosphere and the firmament. Day three, dry ground and plants. Day four, sun, moon, and stars. Day five, birds and sea creatures. And day six, the culmination, land animals, and now humans. Let's just read Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I'm going to stop right there. And now these three points drawn from this extremely important foundational paragraph. First, you are like God and you're supposed to be like God. One of the odd things about the... uh, remote work world that I now live in. I don't know how many of the rest of you are this way. You know, is after 20 plus years of going to the office every day, I am now having a lot of meetings over webcam. And sometimes, I don't know if this has happened to you, but I find myself looking at myself from an odd angle (laughs) because I have three monitors and the one with the webcam is over here. But if I'm looking at this screen and if I see myself, I'm seeing this side of my head. And I always think, Does the side of my head really look like that? (laughs) It's a kind of powerful mirror that gives me a new angle on what I really look like. A mirror represents ourselves to ourselves. It shows us who we are, like that webcam camera does. And a mirror is a good picture of what we ourselves are. And the Bible says that we were created to mirror God. Just look at it, Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. In the Ten Commandments, you might recall, God actually prohibited making images of himself. But that's exactly what he did. He's allowed to do it. We are not. When he made you, he made an image of God. In this passage, God the Father speaks, as I think, This is some matter of dispute in the Christian church over time. God speaks as Father to the Son and Spirit, the other members of the Trinity, when he says, let us make man in our image. The reason I say that, even though the angelic counsel or divine counsel is a possibility, is that we have no other indication that we're made, that, that angels are made in the image of God. The Bible certainly doesn't say that. So I've always taken this as the Trinity. The truth is... You are like God in many ways, whether you want to be or not, because he just said so. Let us make man in our image. And what is God like? If all you know 
is the creation story, what you've read up to Genesis 1.26. Well, he's a creator, and lo and behold, you have, the passi- you have the capacity to create like he does. He speaks, you know that, and lo and behold, you have the capacity to speak. You can even write, even if your spelling isn't as good as God's. And I'll mention more about this later, but throughout Genesis 1, God evaluates his own creative work. And at the end of every day, he beholds his work and he declares it to be good. You can do that. All of the things that we see God doing in Genesis 1 have their analogs among humans made in his image. And I won't have you look at all these verses, but multiple times, five times in verses 3, 10, 12, 18, 21, and 25... He declares his creation to be good. And then I will have you look down at verse 31 of Genesis 1, the the last verse in the chapter, and look how God assesses his creative work. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was not just good, but very good. This is the God in whose image you are made. And like him, you evaluate things, and you love what you regard to be good like him. No other beings on this planet can do what you can do because you are made like God and they are not. Everybody on the planet, every person is made in God's image from the holiest saint to the wickedest criminal, to the toddler with Down syndrome, to the elderly person with dementia. But I didn't just say you are like God. I said you're supposed to be like God. There's another sense in which God's image is also a norm that you're supposed to meet. This is the way the Bible talks about it. And people who study the Bible carefully have struggled a little bit to explain precisely what it means to be made in the image of God because this passage doesn't really explain. I think the first impression a new reader of this passage is probably likely to get is that humans look like God. Image and likeness is the terminology used here. These are visual words. But the way the rest of the Bible uses this concept It can't just mean we're physically similar to God. God is a spirit in any case. He isn't fundamentally physical. And the Bible talks about how Christians are conformed to the image of God's Son. There seems to be an ethical, a moral dimension to the image of God. The image, then, is something that you can reflect more or less of. You can be in more or less conformity to the image of God. And if you know even a little bit of the story of Genesis, you probably know about the first time humans failed to live up to God's image. It's when Adam and Eve failed, when they ate of the tree that God had forbidden them to eat from on pain of death. The serpent promised them, you will not die, but God was right. And only moments later, death came into the world and has stayed till this day. To this day, then, you can be a good mirror of God's character, not a perfect one because we're all fallen, Or you can be a bad one. You can be a whole one, or you can be a cracked one, if we think about mirrors. Sin, of course, is what cracks the mirror and therefore distorts the divine image. But you can never get rid of it. You always have the image of God. You can't destroy the mirror. You can't make yourself into an image of something else other than God. No matter how many darts you throw at someone's picture on the dartboard, it's still their picture. No matter how much you look and act like the serpent, you cannot erase God's image stamped on you. This is the most fundamental fact about you. 
the foundation of your identity. You are an image bearer. You are like God, and you're supposed to be like God. You're supposed to reflect his image like a mirror to anyone watching in the world. Now, if your identity is most fundamentally a gift from God and not something you can create, then you can do what one pastor I respect says. You can loosen the links between your ideas and your identity. Think with me here. People in our highly polarized country, yesterday was voting day, election day. We often act, especially on social media, as if if someone disagrees with them, they're being attacked personally. That's the way people act. People are so invested in their political identities that they form tribes, especially on the internet. And they start to act as if their politics are more fundamental to who they are than is what the Bible says is true of them. People get massively angry at others when they feel their political tribe is threatened. They lash out with even physical violence. I've seen people online be unbelievably nasty over the differences between Macs and PCs. PC people are worse. Just letting you know. <laughs> I've seen teenagers despair over not being one of the cool kids. But if your ultimate identity is secure in the God in whose image you are made, you can chill. If you are a Christian who knows Christ and knows he's made in the image of God, you can, if you know you're made in the image of God, you can talk like Paul does. Listen to what Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians. I don't care if I'm judged by you or by any human court. I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. When God is your ultimate reference point, there will be maybe times when people are all around you objecting to you, but not in arrogance, but in humility, you say, I don't care. It's his judgment that matters most. If the most popular story about our world is true, then there is no God who gives us identities tied to him. And therefore, we are stuck creating our own identities. That's why our culture is trying to fill the void left by a retreating Christianity with all kinds of statements that you can be whoever you want to be. It's filling a vacuum. Many, perhaps most of us, will be failures of one kind or another at various portions of our lives. Sometimes we won't represent God well, but if God is our ultimate source of identity, then in the end, only his evaluation of us matters. A lot of people like to make a God in their own image, but a biblical view of yourself means you recognize that that is completely backwards. That's where we have to start. That is bedrock. That is foundation stone number one. You are made in the image of God. You are like God and you're supposed to be. Second, you are blessed to fill and rule God's world. Look carefully at Genesis 1:28 with me. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion. And I'm going to stop there. If you count those commands, I see five or four, depending on how you count. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth, have dominion. Do you see those with me? I tend to see be fruitful and multiply as basically the same thing. So I tend to see four, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth, have dominion over it. That's what I'm seeing in Genesis 1.28. 
But wait a minute. Are these four commands really commands? What do I mean? Look again at the way this verse is phrased. Look at Genesis 1, 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them these various commands. The words that introduce these apparent imperatives are God blessed them. God gave us the glorious tasks of the creation mandate, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. He gave these as blessings. Do you see it? And God blessed them and God said to them. There were no periods in the Hebrew. This is, could definitely be read as one sentence. I'm not saying the translation is wrong. I think this is true whether you have a period there or not. The ideas flow. God blessed them and God said to them, all these things, do these things. Think of it like this. When I leave the house in the morning, off to the coffee shop where I see your pastor, or off to Bellingham, depending on the day, and my wife, and my wife says, have a great day. What if I were to turn around and say to her, no way. That would not go well. That's true. My wife is a very gentle person, but that would not go well. I am also you know, radically misunderstanding here. You know, it's, if I say, she says, have a great day, and I say, you don't tell me what to do. <laughs> like, technically, technically, it was an imperative, like grammatically, have a nice day. But she wasn't telling me what to do. She was giving me a blessing, okay? That's similar to what's going on here. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. It's utterly foolish for any of us to turn to him and say, you don't tell me what to do, when that's supposed to be a blessing for us. This also explains these simple words, and God bless them, explain why there are so many non-Christian people who do an excellent job, to be frank, at filling the earth and subduing it and having dominion over it. So, so many of the little things that are making it possible for us to meet here tonight were created and or invented by non-Christian people who did not do what they did in subduing the earth, taking the rare earth metals and figuring out how to put them into light bulbs and suck out the air and run current through it so we could have light. They did not do that for the honor and glory of God, and yet they did it. They subdued the earth. They were having dominion over it. Why? Because it's a blessing that God gives to all of his image bearers. But right now, when God's basic marching orders for the planet include telling us all to, have, uh, to be fruitful and multiply, that's probably the main area where I see our culture especially, but all the Western and developed world, as pushing back against God's blessing and say, you don't tell me what to do. He says, be fruitful and multiply, and we say, nah. There are ways in which once that blessing is resisted, its character as a command is revealed. Now, let's be really careful about this. God does not tell us how many children to have. But I want to live my life by the Bible. I want to have a blessed life. I want to do what God says. So when I and my wife sat down to consider how many children should we have, we have a day of technology in which it's, it's possible for us to, uh, to have that conversation the way it wasn't in the centuries past. I thought, 
the Bible says be fruitful and multiply. And I happen to know that the replacement rate for, um, for cultures that want to not shrink, okay, so your population will grow and not shrink, it's 2.1. So I said, okay, let's try to beat that. Let's have three. <laughs> I'm totally serious. Jim, am I totally serious? I'm totally serious. If you want to live your life by the Bible, I'm not saying you've got to have three or more. I'm not willing to lay that obligation on you. But I'm saying if these are the original blessings that God has given to mankind, then this is where I'm going to go, the very first place I'm going to go when I ask myself that very important question and practical question, how many kids am I going to have? Um, I will say that the, the rest of the Bible clarifies that God does call some Christians a singleness, and singleness, singles are not second-class citizens. I'm sure we have some singles in here tonight. Paul says in the New Testament that singles, like him, can dedicate themselves, body and spirit, to the Lord in a special way. But that is the exception to the general rule. In our day, people often act as if there's no norm so that people who don't meet the norm don't feel excluded. And I get that impulse. It is possible to honor mothers on Mother's Day in such a way that all the singles in there, men and women, feel put down. I think that's true. But we can't back off this norm that the Bible boldly states. Most people are supposed to get married like Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, so that humanity can fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. We're supposed to be able to spread over the whole surface of the planet, minus, I guess, Antarctica and probably Canada, because those places are too cold for humans. <laughs> I like to kid Canadians because they're so polite, and they just laugh a big Canadian laugh, and then they say, sorry. <laughs> but actually, it's, I'm perfectly serious in saying that it's amazing that people can live so far north. How do they do that? They have subdued the earth and had dominion over it. They've figured out ways to make that possible. This is what the original blessing to mankind includes. This blessing, this creation mandate, this command to have dominion does not mean destroying our planet, far from it. Preserving the beauty of national parks is part of the task of subduing and having dominion, I'm confident. What these next commands, subdue and have dominion, mean, really, is all the good jobs that exist. I think it's really important that we have preachers and missionaries and Bible scholars and Bible teachers, pastors. Somebody's got to write articles for Bible study magazines. Somebody has to pastor your church and be elders. But if you're not a pastor or elder, you are not a second-class citizen at your church or in the kingdom of God. If you work in construction, or you serve your neighbors as a nurse, or you're a stay-at-home mom, or you're an English teacher, or you're an artist, or a musician, or a thousand other things, a million other things. My kids, when they were little, used to have this book by Richard Scarry. Scarry? You ever had a Richard Scarry book? All the animals? And I loved this one. What do people do all day? It was great. Every page was full of detail showing off different jobs that people can have. And I don't know if you ever noticed this, but half the people are off the ground, like in a Richard Scarry book. Um, actually, Scarry, of course, drew animals, so it was just perfect. I loved it, except it was so long that when my kids were like two and three, I would secretly grab more than one page. <laughs> when I, and they're not here. 
So uh, the lesson to draw from that is <clears throat> there are just too many good jobs in the world, jobs where you get to take charge of one little part of the earth and make it useful for your neighbor. That's what subduing and having dominion is. Scari drew page after page, and he didn't run out. I feel I have to say again, to have dominion doesn't mean to dominate, to crush, to pulverize. It means to use whatever authority and power and ability you have to make the world a more ideal place for human habitation so we can all spread out in it. And when you teach English or wipe a toddler's nose or write an actuarial report for an insurance agency, you can say, I was blessed to subdue the earth and have dominion over it today for the good of my neighbor and the glory of God in whose image I made. You ought to be able to connect what you're doing day by day to these foundational blessings given to mankind. If you're going to serve your neighbor by subduing some part of the earth and having dominion over it, you're going to have to learn the rules of God's created world. Insurance agents have to know math. Who made math? And you can't violate the math rules that God made or your business is going to get messed up. Even moms have to learn to watch what kinds of activities make toddlers get cold. You have to conform yourself to the way God made the world rather than trying to make your own rules in your own world. This topic is very, very deep, very rich, and I can only really give a hint here because I want to move on to the third truth in this passage the one that our culture is most dead set against right now, especially in the, uh, in the more powerful elements of our culture. And that is, you are male or female, and that is very good. Once years ago, back in Greenville, South Carolina, one of my kids was in the shopping cart at the grocery store. Back there, it's called Publix, P-U-B-L-I-X. Write that down. And we came up in line behind a young woman who was very clearly dressed like a boy. Short, boyish hair, backwards cap, boyish shorts, boyish t-shirt. And my three-year-old blurted out so loudly that this young woman couldn't miss it, Dad, that boy looks like a girl. Out of the mouths of babes. Sometimes children cut through adult silliness and sin, don't they? Kids don't know everything, but they know beyond a shadow of a doubt what lots of adults have worked hard to persuade themselves isn't true. Male and female, he created them. Those are the only available options. I read a story about a progressive elementary school in New York City, and this article was written by one of the parents, one of the children there. He himself was far from conservative, certainly not a Christian. But he told the story about how this progressive school proclaimed that all bathrooms could be used by either sex. Little girls, after that, actually started to avoid going potty all day long so they wouldn't have to, encounter, have to encounter boys in the bathroom. This is true. I'm not making this up, and this did not come from, um, this did not come from conservative news outlets. I believe I read this in The Atlantic. Did I say that? No, New York Times. I think New York Times Magazine, I can't remember. Anyway, the kids ultimately went back to having boys' rooms and girl room, girls' rooms no matter what the adults said. They actually just self-sorted. They went back to the way it used to be even though there were no signs on the door. When I heard this story, it broke my heart. We live in a world in which the precious gifts of masculinity and femininity are not treated like gifts at all. I recently read uh, a lengthy book, that one by Carl Truman that's been making the rounds. It started with a simple question. He said, how did we get to the place in North America and Europe in which it isn't self-evidently absurd 
to everyone for someone to say, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. And Truman did it. He showed the step-by-step process by which this idea once considered crazy. I think considered crazy when all of us in this room were born. No matter when that was. There's nobody young enough in here who, uh, how do I say this? Everybody has, was born at a time when this idea was considered crazy. But now it's mainstream. But at each step in this progression, all people had to do was read page one of their Bibles <laughs> and page one of their bodies. And they would see the truth. You are male or female. And this is very good. Don't let the culture press you into thinking it's not. Here's the thing. Without reading page one of your Bibles, you can't know for sure what page one of your body means. If there's no God giving us our sexual identities, male or female, as respective gifts, then it doesn't matter what my private parts look like, I can do with my body whatever makes me happy at the moment. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. You do you, let me do me. My body doesn't have norms or rules if I'm not created. If I'm an evolutionary accident, if I'm just what protoplasm does at this you know, spot above sea level, then I can maybe just start the path of evolution off in my own chosen direction. If there's no God giving us marching orders to be fruitful and multiply, then the sexual part of life can be for pleasure only if I want it to be. That's the world we have right now, a brave new world. And that idea has caused incredible hurt and heartache because humans were designed for sexual pleasure. God invented sex, but sex was not created to work outside a committed marriage of a male and a female till death do they part. I want to demonstrate this to you very quickly. Turn to Matthew 19. This is a passage that you really need to have on your uh, mental Rolodex for quick access when questions come up about gender and sexuality in our culture. Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, right at the beginning of the chapter, in the second paragraph, verse 3, Some Pharisees came up to Jesus and they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read? Pause for one second. What is he implying? Reading is a moral activity. Getting the right meaning from the Bible is something you're morally obligated to do. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I'll stop there. Jesus did not treat Adam and Eve as um, fictional archetypes, right, that are trying to teach us something in general like fairy tales do. Jesus treated this original couple not only as a story that really happened, but as a story that is normative, providing a rule for the way we're supposed to live. God made them male and female, therefore certain things follow. And the main thing is that the one flesh union we call marriage is a union that God makes. He glues the couple together and no one's supposed to unglue them. Genesis tells a story that, according to Jesus, really matters. 
It provides the original blueprint for the way that today's relationships between men and women are supposed to go. Let's turn back to Genesis 1. We're going to um, finish out the rest of our time here. We're not going to do any other uh, checking of cross-references, but just have yourself in Genesis 1. There's so much to say about this topic from Scripture, and I, I really do urge all of you to study hard what the Bible says about men and women and not to flinch, but to believe that the person who loved you and gave his son for you actually knows best how to make your life satisfying and fulfilling. In Genesis 1, we get the norm that God gives for all creation. God made them male and female. So I want to speak briefly to young ladies in here. We have a few. I tell my wife all the time that what attracted me to her, above all, was that she was a lady. I love having a truly feminine wife. And she's not some parody of femininity, some boy toy or some pretty pink princess. She's a hard worker. Many of you have driven past our house many times, and she's been out in the back in her flower farm. That's a dirty and difficult job. Her nails, if they ever do get done, never last very long because there's dirt underneath the fingernails, and I love it. I tell her she's like, you know, she's like even past the Proverbs 31 woman. She's like at level Proverbs 38 now or something. <laughs> After all these years, I can't really put my finger on exactly what it is that makes her so perfectly feminine. She has a mystique. Is it her walk? Is it her motions? Is it her voice, her gentleness, her love for flowers, her tenacity as a mom, her support and help to me? I just know that I'm glad she didn't listen to voices in our culture that were telling her that men and women are interchangeable. Girls, work to discover. With your Bible and with the help of your own mother or some godly Christian lady, Work to discover what a lady is and conform yourself to it. Young men, let me speak to you. You, too, work to discover with your Bible and with the help of your father or pastor or elder, if need be, what a man is and conform yourself to it. These elements of our character, of our identity, are given to us as good gifts. Don't resist them. If you're not a follower of Jesus, and I'm presuming anybody who comes to church on a Wednesday night and stays this long, I mean, the donuts were fine and everything, but you're probably a Christian. But you talk to people who aren't. If they aren't, and you tell them this stuff, it's going to sound totally foreign to them, but maybe strangely attractive, I don't know, like finding their true home. If what Genesis 1 says about you and me as created beings, as male and female, just resonates with you, then dig in you'll find that following Jesus is the only thing that really makes sense of our world and of your identity. But if you don't follow Jesus, and all this is foreign, and maybe not just foreign, but even offensive, especially the male-female stuff, I just encourage you to recognize what's going on here. You're telling yourself a different story about your origins, nature, and purpose than the Bible tells. Almost certainly the one you're telling yourself about the world is one you've picked up from the prevailing winds of American culture. You have a worldview, even if you don't think you do. Is your story really better than the one that God tells? Is that even possible? No. And not to put too fine a point on it, but I ask out of love for anyone here who's trying to tell themselves a different story about where we all came from, why we're here, what's wrong with the world, where we're going. How's that working out for you? The sexual freedom that our culture began giving to itself in the late 1960s that utterly rejected all this has created untold pain, and it's not done. Perhaps our Creator knows best how to give us good lives.
in The Incredibles. The key narrative transition moment. Turn to Incredibles 5-7. The key narrative transition moment in Violet's story arc comes as she stands outside the cave on the island. You remember this, where the bad guy lives, Syndrome? She has just tearfully confessed to her mother that she doesn't think she can do the superhero stuff. Her force field efforts on the plane failed and nearly got them all killed. And her mom tells her, don't worry, it's in your blood. And then Elastigirl takes off to find Mr. Incredible, who's either in trouble or he's going to be. And Violet stands there outside the cave thinking she's got to choose whether she will conform to her nature and embrace the responsibilities that come with it, including at that moment, protecting her annoying little brother. The normally retiring and wilting Violet, who's always hunched over like this, suddenly stands tall and puts on her superhero mask. She chooses to conform her will to her nature. The call of the Bible is for you to do the same. You are created. Your identity is a gift from God, not a creation of your own. It's a gift he means for you to give back to him by living a life of obedience. It's a gift he means for you to give to others by living a life of love, as the Bible teaches. So, step outside the cave. Stand up and be who God says you are in Christ. Accept the fact that you were made to be like God and to represent him. You were blessed to fill the planet and rule some portion of it. You were made as one of only two options in an irreducible binary, male or female. And whichever kind you are, you're probably going to marry the other kind or are married to it. That's kind of how the filling in the earth and multiplying stuff happens. All this to me is exciting. This passage of the Bible answers deep questions I have about who and what I am. And if this is not exciting to you but repulsive, I call you to repent and to admit that the person who best knows who you really are is the one who made you.